It's just after midnight Monday, June 20th, 2022, 141 days until the term ends, and you are home for misinformation, disinformation, also known as the truth, the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Paul, how was your week? It was a great week, actually. We went on a family bike ride. I managed to not fall off the bike <laughs> this uh, weekend, which is, which I, I found to be quite liberated when I see the president of the United States falling off a bike and I realize, hey, I actually know how to ride one. It made me feel pretty good about myself and my kids too. I don't understand why for a 79 or however old he is, 82, whatever, he has those toe clips on his pedals. I mean, that, isn't that like for Tour de France or, or more of like a cyclist? I mean, that seems kind of difficult for an 80-year-old to get in and out of those. And as we saw in that video, just really sad. Well, maybe it's from his 25-year-old staffers that he has that we've all seen make those disastrous decisions. They're like, hey, you got to show the toe clips because it's going to make you look like a real biker and you'll get to relate to those people. Nobody wants to see kind of grandpa with the ice cream. Let's go back to the professional biker thing. So that's what it could have been. But as with all of the ideas that it seems that his staff seems to come up with, it turns into one big backfire. It's kind of hilarious where you see, and during the election in 2020, a lot of people saying, well, you know, Trump is fat. He's out of shape. You know, Biden actually does exercise. He rides a bike. A lot of people saying he's out getting proper exercise. He does this and that. I mean, these all of these tweets aged very poorly because it was a sad state of affairs over the weekend. When you combine that with his appearance on Jimmy Kimmel, it's clear this guy is in physical and mental decline, and the whole world is seeing this. My question is, did he even go on a real bike ride? It's sort of like, okay, the media is positioned, and there's people here with cell phones in this corner. Let's stop the SUVs right out of their sight, get the bike out, and then ride around that corner. Just You can do it, Mr. President. Just 200 feet you have to ride just to get around those cameras. And then there'll be other SUVs around the following corner meeting you. We'll get back in. I wonder if that's what happened. I think it's very possible because, number one, it's clear that he would probably hurt himself if he was going on long rides, given his current metal state. And number two, it was a pretty hot weekend last weekend, you know, including in Delaware. I mean, no sweat. His hair was perfectly you know, in place. Very possible. I want to point out before we get started, the Midnight Ride podcast we hope you're enjoying it. We know, you know, we want to thank our subscribers. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating and tell a friend. The word of mouth is working very well for us. Continue to spread the word if you like us in our mission of, of calling out threats to our liberty. So today is Juneteenth, Paul. Or, uh, federal. Happy Juneteenth, everybody. We got happy pride and happy Juneteenth. I mean, everybody's just going to be really happy going over uh, this massive historical event for America and a, and a free federal holiday. You and I were in the military, a uh, member in the military where there was a federal holiday like, you know, Dr. King's birthday or Veterans Day. Those turn into four-day weekends for a lot of the military and a lot of the people in government. So this is costing the American taxpayer a lot of money to commemorate Juneteenth. What the hell is it? Well, I mean, banks are closed today. So it's not just not just the government. There's 
quite a bit. And one of the things about the Midnight Ride, I mean, us coming out always releasing right just after midnight on a Monday, we're the first for all of these these federal holidays. And in fact, many of our competitors, podcasters, radio hosts, et cetera, they don't, you tend to get like the best of episodes, <laughs> things that aren't very timely on these holidays. So the Midnight Ride is your place to learn about many of these. And Juneteenth being such a new holiday is one that I think is is great for our listeners to learn a little bit about. So what is Juneteenth? Once again, I go to our friends over at the History Channel for some really good background here. I'm not trying to make a mockery of Juneteenth because I, I do think it was a big day in our nation's history and, and it has a lot of historical significance, but more so in the state of Texas, I think, and not nationally. It was a big deal nationally, but I don't think it rates a federal holiday. We all know why President Biden did what he did, and that's why he does everything that he does. But let's let's hear a little bit more about this. It could actually merit a holiday, in my opinion, but we can, let's learn a little bit more about it, and then we can, we can discuss our thoughts. So what Juneteenth actually commemorates is when the day that federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1865 to take control of the state and ensure that enslaved people are freed. Now, President Lincoln actually did the Emancipation Proclamation a few years earlier. So people are asking, well, why is Juneteenth a holiday, not the Emancipation Proclamation? It doesn't make any sense because it was actually two, I believe, two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation that the slaves were freed in Texas. And the reason that Juneteenth is such a holiday is because when Lincoln made that proclamation, it didn't actually free the slaves. There was a civil war going on. The border states still were allowed to keep slaves. And Texas, if you you can think about where it is geographically, way back in 1860s was sort of a frontier. I mean, it was really far from anywhere else. So it took a really long time for slaves to be freed all over the country. And Texas was actually the last place. So most people don't actually consider slaves to have been officially freed completely within the Union until that day in Galveston, Texas. And that's why Juneteenth has become significant. So it's been interesting. But as as you said, it does have more of a meaning in Texas. So it really started, you know, the next year, Freed Slaves in Texas organized the first of what became the annual celebration of Jubilee Day, as they called it, on June 19th. And it would feature music, barbecues, prayer services, all of that. And actually, in 1979, Texas became the first state to make Juneteenth an official holiday. So they were really the first to do it based on that. So you can see how it carries all of that weight in Texas. But it is an important day because that was essentially the last final freedom for slaves in the United States. Absolutely is significant. Out here on this frontier outpost of America, a lot of people were still in bondage. And, you know, they didn't know what had happened. They didn't know about, uh, you know, Appomattox and Robert E. Lee surrendering. That could be a federal holiday, too, is the restoration of the Union on April 9th, 1865. There were battles being fought in Texas after that date. 
out here on the frontier of Texas, people didn't know that this had occurred. Not only did the slaves not know, some of the slave owners clearly didn't know. Well, yeah, Abraham Lincoln didn't tweet it. Yeah, exactly. If we had Twitter back then, everything would have been good. But it was like the Pony Express or whatever the case may be. And yeah, so it does have big historical significance. I just question the motives of the president for for doing this. You know, how many more federal holidays are we going to get? I personally feel like Election Day should be a federal holiday, and I would rather swap that out with this one. What should rise to the to the significance of a federal holiday? That's always been a question that I have. And I don't, I mean, because theoretically, I'm sure there's plenty of American people out there that would love to have 365 federal holidays and then just get free government handouts. Well, and and actually, there are a lot of people that are on holiday 365 getting government handouts. That's a good question. I mean, we could go through them all. I mean, many of them have to do with our nation's founding, our nation's birthday, the 4th of July, Veterans Day and Memorial Day, honoring the sacrifice of veterans and people who paid the ultimate price on Memorial Day. We have President's Day, which honors the guys that basically we can thank for having a country in Washington and Lincoln and their birthdays. What gets to me, what what I would, I mean, what I think's interesting is that Columbus Day, which to me is one of the most important holidays we have because that is when the first Westerner stepped foot in North America. And if it wasn't for that, we would have no country. I mean, who? if it wasn't for Christopher Columbus, would the United States ever have come to exist in its, in its current form? We have no idea. And yet somehow that holiday has become slammed as racist, as uh, it shouldn't even be existed. It should be renamed Indigenous Peoples Day. That one to me is, I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, people, they actually, a lot of people, they hate our country. You know, they make no bones about it. I think the George Washington University last week changed the name of, you know, their, their mascot was the Colonials. And they got rid of that because they thought that that was somehow negative. I mean, listen, Columbus discovering the new world. So we've now got colonial. So colonial names, I was actually thinking maybe the colonials, instead of that, they should change their name to the Bolsheviks. It's probably a different kind of revolution that they they would like to espouse as opposed to that. I don't know what they changed their name to, but one of the ones they were considering was revolutionaries. And I, yeah, I think Bolsheviks would probably fit in very well with the faculty. But there's no doubt that a lot of Americans, especially in academia, they despise our country and its founding. And so Columbus Day has to go. The, you know, Columbus's arrival in the New World eventually brought, you know, subjugation of Native peoples up and down the Americas. But it also ended a lot of things like human sacrifice and, you know, some of the slaughter that was being carried out by many of the native tribes on their on the other native tribes. I mean, it's not like Yeah, I mean, if you think that the the Indians that were living in America before we got here it was like this, you know, completely peaceful culture where everybody's just in the teepee smoking the peace pipe and <laughs> hanging out. I mean, it it wasn't. I mean, it was pretty brutal. It was very brutal. We're going to we're going to take a hit for that from media matters or or some some critics. But uh yeah, I mean Hey, maybe we can maybe we can bring Elizabeth Warren on for some expert 
<laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it's true. Like some of these tribes, like the Sioux and others, they were very brutal to some of the other tribes. And there was, there was conquest, there was rape, there was murder, there was human sacrifice of children, uh, all of those things. And, and, and uh, the Spaniards and the Dutch and the English and those that came over here, you know, you can make your own judgments about what you think is better, but I'm just glad that the United States of America exists. It's the greatest country in the history of the world. Juneteenth, you know, it's, it is an important step. I don't know if it warrants a federal holiday, but I think... But I do like the acknowledgement of it. I think it's an, I do think it's a great, interesting day. A presidential decree or something would have been okay. But remember... Exactly. You know, when Biden was running for president, he was getting destroyed. He lost to Pete Buttigieg in Iowa. He lost to Bernie Sanders in, in New Hampshire. And so here comes South Carolina. And, you know, I think South Carolina made a little deal with the president. If it wasn't for black voters, Joe Biden would not be president. That is very clear. Well, in fact, they said he said, if you didn't vote for him, then you're not even black. That is true. But, you know, my vice president will be a black woman. My Supreme Court justice will be a black woman. You know, Juneteenth is a federal holiday. So he's running out of, you know, and he's got a, now he has a new press secretary who is actually, I think, a, an immigrant black woman. I'm not sure. Or, or. Yeah, she's ha- a Haitian background. And they made a very big deal of the fact that she's a member of the LGBTQIAA plus community. Yeah, she's, pro- her days are probably numbered because she's completely inept, but uh, she's cute. I like her. She's she, like Jen Psaki. It's hard to sit through a press briefing, especially with her, because she doesn't know what she's doing. But along the way, Biden has has done all of these different things to try to show the black community that he cares, while at the same time, destroying all their jobs, destroying all the progress made during the Trump administration for black Americans economically. But what does he have left in his toolbox to continue to try to hang on to this demographic? Because as we're going to talk about later in the show, he's losing Hispanics and he's starting to lose, the Democratic Party is starting to lose their grip on the black vote. Well, I think he has the granddaddy of them all that he's still got in his back pocket, and that is reparations. I think reparations have have been called for. I think it's an absolutely horrible idea, but some of the most prominent folks in the black community now have been calling for it. I know, of course, for many years, you've heard the likes of Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton calling for for reparations and cash payments. You now have Nicole Hannah-Jones, the famous race hustler and founder of the 1619 Project. Uh, according to her quote, we must have reparations, and I believe in financial respira- reparations across the Atlantic world. And she even wants to have a separate conversation about reparations for colonialism as a whole. Uh, a few other folks you have uh, somebody by the name of Nikichi Taifa, who is the director of the Reparation Education Project, a nonprofit organization that teaches about reparations, said, quote, we need something much more substantive than the Juneteenth federal holiday. We need reparatory justice and we need it now. Our communities are crying out for it. Our communities are demanding it. And there are some folks that wrote a recent book Economists William Darity and a folklorist named A. Kristen Mullen had a book called From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, recommended 
that the government pay 10 to $12 trillion or $800,000 for each eligible black household, <laughs> which would to eradicate longstanding racial disparities in wealth, health, income, education, incarceration rates, and overall quality of life, despite literally no evidence that slavery is linked to what's happening in the black community 150 years later. Oh, no. And we, we've talked about what's happening in the black community. And it's, it's funny, you know, the day after Father's Day, we're having this discussion. The black culture was destroyed by the Democratic Party and this, you know, similar types of, you know, policymakers who, you know, basically replaced black men with a paycheck. From 1940 to 1960, black Americans saw their, their education levels and wealth increase exponentially. Thomas Sowell, the famous Stanford economist, said that the number of years of schooling for black males doubled in those 20 years. And, you know, their income went up. Most blacks actually raised themselves out of poverty, but then Johnson expanded the welfare state and it destroyed, it destroyed the culture. You know, a third of Americans now live in a home where their biological father is not there. And that's much higher. It's, it's a majority of black children live without their biological fathers. That is why we have all these issues. It's not because, you know, all these generations ago, there was slavery. And didn't you say that California is already looking at this in a, in a past show? Well, they are. And there's actually been a, there have been a number of, of cities that, and states that that are looking at the reparations issue right now. But one thing that's interesting is when the, the quote war on poverty, which I think is kind of a, the closest thing you can think of to the reparations because it really codified that whole idea of endless cash payments to people. The, the poverty rate uh, was 27% among black Americans when that happened. And now it's 29%. So the poverty rate's gone up since those, since, cash payments have sort of become a, a mainstay of American society. And I don't see how that now they would fix anything, right? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. No, as you, as you very astutely point out, I mean, we see what giving money away has done just in the last two years for our, our youth. But, you know, let's go through all of the reasons why this is a bad idea. And for one thing, it's, isn't it that old adage, you give a man a fish, he eats for a day, you teach a man to fish, he eats for a lifetime? Exactly. I think you're right about that. But one of the things when it comes to reparations is we need to focus on how it could even be done. So on the first thing, we, we can't really prove that slavery is responsible for the issues that are being, are, have hit the black community today. But furthermore, how do we even determine who would pay reparations? I mean, both of our families weren't even in the United States, I, I don't believe, when slavery was happening, right? That is exactly it. Logistically, I mean, basically the way it would work, there's no other way. I mean, this is what the Democrats want, is that they would take money out of the general fund. I mean, the taxes collected would go to Black America. Well, no, actually, well, let's, no, that's, they print money. Let's be honest. There's no, there's no money in the general fund for anything. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. And then, so that's, that's part of it is we, we can't, our deficit would just skyrocket. They would borrow the money. They would print the money, but the money would be 
essentially put on all of our grandchildren, the debt would be, you know, hanging from their necks. But you bring up an excellent point. I mean, my ancestors weren't here. They were in Ireland. Good chance that yours may not have been here at that time, right? Yeah, mine were in mine were in Europe as well. So we weren't even here, okay? In 1861, what percentage of Americans do these people think owned slaves? I mean, you know, the plantation owners and, and you know, the people who ran the agrarian South, they were not that numerous. You know, that there were a lot of white people in the South that were poor that were, frankly, practically indentured servants themselves. And a lot of people who did, most of the people in the South did not own slaves. And, and no one in the North, for the most part, most of the people in the North did not own slaves. So you're saying that, you know, if 90% of white Americans prior to the Civil War did not own slaves, I don't know what the actual numbers are. That's a guess on my part. Well, you're right. And then, and then, it, so we don't know who would pay the reparations and then who would actually receive the reparations. So, well, my question, like, does Oprah Winfrey receive reparations or Robert? I mean, like, do, does, do I, someone who have ancestors from Europe, you and me, nothing to do with slavery, our ancestors had nothing to do with slavery, yet we have to pay money to Oprah? I just wanted to also add that there were a small number of black people in the South that owned slaves um, dirt before the Civil War. Are their ancestors getting reparations? Yeah. And then, you know, some poor sucker at a, in a trailer park in Kentucky, you know, whose mom is is about to die of a fentanyl over overdose and who may not have even have their ancestors were probably not slave owners. Right. They're going to have to pay money to Bob Johnson, Oprah, and LeBron James. And what? And then what about Barack Obama, who is half black, but he doesn't have ancestry related to slavery either because his father was from Africa. And then, and then even more, what about if you're mixed heritage? So like Barack Obama being one, Tiger Woods. So people like that, do they get half reparation payment or nothing? Or, I mean, how do you, how does this even work? Or what, does Obama pay reparations to himself? Yeah, his mom's <laughs> side, again, she might, her, her ancestors might not have owned slaves. His father wasn't from here. Yeah, so logistically, it would be very difficult. Government sucks at everything they do, right? I mean, they can't manage a healthcare system. They can't seem to do anything effectively. Well, look at Native American Indian reservations if you want to see how government does really screws things up. I mean, here are, you know, Native Americans who did, who were removed from their land, who were kicked off. The government essentially became the stewards of these reservations and have put Native American populations under so much red tape and bureaucracy that those are some of the poorest places uh, in the United States. And the government has essentially done nothing to help them. Well, you, you bring up another great point because reparations, so some of these Native American tribes, they do receive cash payments, you know, on their 18th birthday, where I was from in San Diego, uh, the Kumeyaay tribe in San Diego County, I think those kids got like a $100,000 check on their 18th birthday. Do we see a lot of wealth being? No. This, what the welfare state did to black America was it destroyed it. And so when you, when you just give somebody a check, you're not helping the black community by doing that. You could argue. and, and I Yeah, you can argue, but it's an expedient way 
of getting votes because it's just so easy to cater to people's emotions when you say, hey, vote for me and you're going to get a payment. Yeah. And so and it's that's the Democratic Party's M.O. I mean, they do that in so many different ways with our money, with our tax money, giving it out in in the form of entitlements. And, you know, you'd almost be willing to go along with some of these things if you thought they would work. But I think that if you did this, you would actually hurt the black community even more. And I think that, you know, what we see with critical race theory and that and that stuff, you know, telling particularly young black males, you are a victim. But here's a check. I don't know if we're building the foundation for something. What, what we need is an emphasis on the family, an emphasis on fatherhood, um, probably getting rid of some of the welfare entitlements and focusing on on ways that you can build wealth, getting the fixing the public schools. That's if you want to do reparations, that's where they should do it. Is they should do they should give all Americans, especially Black Americans, school choice. And rather than give people a check, maybe they get a full ride scholarship to a university, a community college, and then a state college or you know a trade school. Let's don't give people money that's just going to be wasted. Give them a foundation. Nope, you're completely right. Completely right. So let's go over a couple other things on the reparation side. So let's remember 625,000 Americans died during the Civil War, and most of those on the Union side that were fighting to end slavery. So you've got hundreds of thousands of white Americans that gave their lives uh, the ultimate sacrifice to end it. That's in a country that was one tenth the size of what it is today, that would be the equivalent of six. 0.25 million Americans dying in a war. So that's a huge amount of no, uh, huge amount of people that that died. So we, we so we've got that. There's also a number of things already. Paul, that's that's such a great point. You know, people talk about the stain of slavery and certainly it was. But these people like, you know, Hannah Nicole Jones and, and these other activists, they act like the United States invented slavery or or that you know the colonists who landed on Plymouth Rock they invented slavery and so many of our young people don't know history slavery had been around for millennia for centuries before that and so yes it was accepted in the 17th century and 18th century it was a, a widely accepted practice worldwide it still exists today but you know who ended slavery is, was the West. It was, you know, Christians, white-skinned people who realized the, the folly of their ways, largely due to their God and their, their beliefs. And those, however many 600,000 people who died to end it, that's not a small thing. I mean, those people, are their ancestors going to have to pay? Because they already paid the ultimate price. Yeah, people need to look at history to see how these kind of things work, right? So, I mean, the Holocaust in Europe, Jews were not paid, are not receiving cash payments for the Holocaust, which many people can say, I mean, I, I don't know how you put the two, how you compare the two, but the Holocaust was extermination of 6 million Jews was, was awful. And I don't see the families of those Jews getting reparations. Uh, Asian Americans were interned in the United States during World War II. Their land was confiscated and stolen. Many of them have not gotten it back. I think most of them. I don't think it was really given back to anybody. So 
I mean, you have that. I think they did get reparations, though. Some sort of check. At the end, at the end of it. Okay. And then you've got slavery going back thousands of years. That And you mentioned it, that it's existed forever. It wasn't just Africans. I mean, there were Arabs that were enslaved. White people were enslaved. If you look at the on the east coast of Africa, Zanzibar, I've actually been there. And uh, there's a slave that was really the headquarters of the East African slave trade. And there were whites, there were Arabs, there were all kinds of slaves that were that were there being shipped off all over the place. So it's such a complicated issue. I just think that these people calling for reparations are not serious. I think they run nonprofits. I think they have a lot to gain financially. And uh, we're just focusing in the wrong, we're focusing in the wrong area. We are, but as we've seen, and, and, and you mentioned that, you know, seven to $20 trillion, we can't afford it, number one. But, you know, as we've seen people like Hannah Nicole Jones and Ibram X. Kendi and all that, this is a cottage industry. I mean, this outrage and this activism, it pays very well. I mean, school districts uh, are paying people, corporations are paying people to come in and tell their employees how guilty they should feel about what what happened centuries ago. You know, the reparations thing, though, there is a legacy of sadness that, that occurred because remember Sherman's march during the Civil War and, and General William Tecumseh Sherman going down through the South and, and you know, basically laying waste to a lot of the uh, landowners' holdings and burning things down. But he actually gave an order in 1865 that he would say that some freed families would get plots of land of 40 acres. And he actually also ordered that the army should give mules to these farmers to help with the agrarian, you know, effort. And so, you know, this ex- this expression, 40 acres and a mule, a lot of these freed slaves believed that the government was going to give them, that this was their birthright, that this was sort of their their payback, as it were. And it never really materialized. But you see people I think even Spike Lee or you know somebody I think he had a, a company called 40 Acres and a Mule Productions or something that has been in the collective memory of black Americans that they are owed something and and the stain of you know the act of slavery is such a big stain on our country but I don't know if it can ever really be repaid in 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 a sense right and then if you do pay reparations if you cut a check for as you say, eight hundred thousand per family or whatever. Do you think that at that point that the Hannah Nicole, I forget her name, Jones or Smith or Ibram Kendi or, or Nicole Hannah Jones, I think. Uh, yeah, whatever her name is, Nicole. Do you think these people are all just going to go? Okay, we're even, Stephen. Now we're clear. Of course not. Well, no, because once you do reparations, then then how's she going to make her money? So she's got to get to the next thing to make to raise more money. I mean, that's how these. That's how this whole operation works. It's like the outrage industrial complex, the OIC. Absolutely. Well, you know, we see what, you know, the Democratic Party has done with minority voters and especially with black voters over the years. And we see what that has done for the black community. When we come back, we're going to talk about the fastest growing voting block in America. That would be our friends of Hispanic descent and some troubling trends continuing for the Democratic Party when we come back on The Midnight Ride. We're 
back. And, and Paul, we have a, a new congressman in the United States coming to us from Texas. You may have seen in the recent elections in Texas, there was a special election in the 34th Congressional District, which is a sliver along the Gulf Coast, starting down in Brownsville and moving up through. Brownsville was is actually in Cameron County, but it encompasses another four or five counties, including uh, Willisee County and a few others. Harlingen and Brownsville are the two biggest cities, as well as uh, Kingsville and Corpus Christi. We all know Corpus Christi. So a little sliver along the southeast coast of Texas. And the winner of that election was somebody that is probably going to have Democrats scratching their heads. A woman by the name of Mayra Flores. You are really good with the real Spanish accent when you do the when you say the names. I've had a little bit of training. I grew up in Southern California. <laughs> Myra Flores was born in Mexico, okay? She is a U.S. citizen, of course, but she I think she's the first, she might be the first congressman or congresswoman who was born in Mexico. And she just won the election, so she is a sitting U.S. congressman. And if you look at the history of the recent history of politics, not just in the United States, but in Texas. I mean, the Democrats have owned the Hispanic vote. That is, especially on the in the border region, Paul, that is rapidly changing. And so she won the election. She won it quite handily. And at least for the next several months, she's going to be a congresswoman for the Republican Party and for her constituents. Well, she can't, I mean, she's Republican. She can't be a real Latina. Right. That's impossible. <laughs> impossible. Well, by the way, th this special election occurred because the congressman who had been there since March, a guy by the name of Philemon Vela Jr., he resigned to go become a lobbyist. I don't know if that is uh, a sign of, you know, the rats jumping ship before the red tsunami, but people like Vela and, and many of the others that represent the Democratic Party in Texas, yes, they are Hispanic, but they are part of this political elite class quite often. You know, Flores is not like that at all. Again, she was not born in this country. Her husband is a border patrol agent. And part of her platform was, every night I go to bed, I, I worry that my husband might not come back. We need to take back our border. We need a safe border. I mean, the people who live along the Rio Grande and, and the people who live along the Texas border, their lives have been put in danger by the Biden administration, which clearly is just basically waving everybody in because they think that the people that are coming in and their children will eventually become Democratic voters. But I think they should be alarmed at this one, Paul. Well, this goes back to our last segment where we're talking about the free handouts. And I think what we are seeing with these the immigrant population uh, is that they don't necessarily respond. They, they aren't coming anywhere, I don't think, for free things, what we're learning in a lot of cases. People that came here legally have worked hard to make a family for themselves, and they get upset with the inflation, with the terrible government policy, with allowing people coming in illegally to jump the line over those that came in legally. And I think what we're realizing is that the Hispanic voters in this country, and especially, and even those from Mexico, are 
impacted by the same forces that all American voters are. And they just want to be able to have a, a functioning country and be able to keep what they earn and send their kids to college. They're not looking for for the free handouts. And I don't think it's fair for the Democratic Party to just assume that just because you're a certain race, you're going to want the free stuff and you're going to vote. Now, you came from California. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the original movement among the Mexican immigrants. And I remember this being the great, the, the great farmers in California and Cesar Chavez and that push for unionization a long time ago. I think that's where kind of the original roots of the far left, that view that Mexican immigrants will veer far left. But it's been a long time since then and things have changed, right? Well, they have. And and another thing that the Democratic Party, I mean, first of all, you, you say it's not fair for them to do that or to think that, but that's all they know. I mean, these are Marxists. These are people who believe in socialism and they're welcoming in all these economic migrants. Most of them are economic. And these people, you know, they have, a lot of them have families that already made it here. They understand what it could mean for their family and their children. So they could be in a country where there's, where they will be safe. Uh, you know, there's not narco terrorists running their country, or they could be in a country where their children actually have an opportunity you know, unlike them, when you get born in a, in a place like, you know, Honduras or, or Peru and you're in a certain lot in life, not here. I mean, here your, your kids go to school and they can be anything. You see it all the time where there's people, you know, at University of California graduating with PhDs and their parents are still working in the fields. Um, that's the beauty of America. So, but the Democrats don't know any better. Another thing they don't know is that the Latino vote is not a monolith. Wait, you said Latino, don't don't you mean Latinx? <laughs> well, that's that that's another issue altogether, but yes, I'll never forget. So this this is the immortal Glenn Beck. He said, I remember listening to him on one of his shows two a couple of years ago and he's he's like Latinx, what is that? He goes, is that like Kleenex for Hispanic people? I don't understand what that <laughs> what that name well, is. I don't I don't I mean, do Hispanics even like being called Latinx or Latinx? No. They didn't, no. I don't even, did they even come up with that term? I don't think so. The, no, this was created by some white liberal person, you know, on some university or, or some. Probably a, like a Wellesley or something, probably. Yeah, or, or some politically indoctrinated leftist Hispanic. But it's not a monolithic voting block by any means. You know, black Americans, they're black and they're American, right? And we don't really include, you know, all of the, highly successful African-American immigrants, people from places like Nigeria or South Africa, Kenya, in that voting block. So they feel like they've got that group figured out. But Hispanics, you know, even just, I mean, you've got obviously people from South America, you've got Central America, Mexico. Mexico has, you know, 30, I want to say 31 different states, all different regions there. So it's, it's very different. For example, you know, Cuban Americans, Venezuelan Americans, they tend to lean toward liberty because they have lived under the oppression of communism and they tend to vote Republican. It's no surprise, no coincidence that President Obama, one of his last acts as president was to get rid of the wet foot, dry foot policy, allowing Cubans to remain as legal residents in the United States if they could get to our shores and put their foot on their 
Obama eliminated that. Well, that's interesting. What you know, there was a tweet by Monica Crowley that I saw that sort of references what could be next given this change. I mean, what what did you can you read that tweet for our audience? Well, actually, I, I yeah, I was trying to set that up, but this is a new thing we're doing on the Midnight Ride, which is the Midnight Ride Tweet of the Week. And Monica Crowley, who was, I think, in our labor department under Trump, says, when it dawns on the Democrats how Latinos are now voting, they will shut the border so fast your head will spin. I kind of laughed at that because, again, the borders are open because Biden and his handlers, his Marxist handlers, think that this will benefit them politically. That's obvious to everyone. We do need an influx of new blood. We do need an influx of younger population because without immigration, you know, our current birth rate is not sustainable. Well, yeah, I mean, abortion is destroying our birth rate. So it's without, you know, with all the abortion happening in the U.S., the only way we can replace the population is through immigration. But also the narcissism and the, the, the lack of our values, you know, our values, we used to value families. Now we're telling young ladies to go for it, try to climb the corporate ladder. You can do anything that a man can do. And so, you know, fewer people are having kids. So we do need immigrants, but the Democratic Party, their policies kind of show what they think. I mean, again, Obama eliminating wet foot, dry foot, that has the effect of reducing the number of people who might come here and vote Republican. Meanwhile, you know, opening up the southern border and just having waves of Mexican, Honduran, Guatemalan immigrants coming in, they clearly think that that will help them politically. You mentioned the the people in California. Well, the people in Texas are different. They're different. They're from different parts of Mexico quite frequently. And also, if they live in the border region, they have been devastated by Joe Biden. The policies of the Biden administration, they shut down the borders for Mexican tourists, right, because of COVID. They opened up the borders. They said, give us your human traffickers, your drug traffickers, all of these illegal immigrants come across in waves. We don't care from what, what country. They waved them on in. At the same time they were doing that, they said, if you do not have proof of vaccination, you Mexican tourists cannot come in to the United States. So all of the businesses in places like Laredo and McAllen and Brownsville, El Paso, they were crushed during the pandemic by Joe Biden's insane policies. And on top of that, the crime rate in these communities increased and the amount of drugs coming into the country increased. That hurts Hispanic Americans more than anybody else. And then, you know, and just like us, I'm sitting here at my Father's Day. I know you had a great Father's Day with your family. Uh, My Father's Day, I was alone. My wife and kids went on summer vacation. I could not afford to go because of Bidenflation. We couldn't buy the fourth plane ticket. It's affecting everybody, but the, the economy is really hurting Hispanic voters as well. And we're not even getting into things like Latinx, which you just mentioned, which is an insult to their entire culture and their language, which they're very proud of. And the abortion issue. Hispanic voters are Catholic. They are they have values. I would not all, but many. We don't want to generalize like the left does. So well, uh, I, most of them are Catholic. Okay, I, as, as as far as the values, 
I can say because I, you know, I lived in California. I'm, I'm married to a Mexican woman. I understand these things. Look, we've seen a shift in the Democratic Party. We've talked about it so many times on the Midnight Ride. They used to represent those people, like you said, the union folks, Cesar Chavez, all of these blue-collar factory workers, et cetera. Now they're the party of, elite, of the elites. And Donald Trump kind of set off a wave of pop. There's a lot of folks that are, you know, wear blue jeans, they blue-collar folks. And a lot of Hispanic Americans identify more now with the Republican Party it used to be a, a, a 70-30 type of thing or, or 85 or 75-25 in favor of Democrats. I think right now that red wave is going to include a large amount of Hispanic voters. And I think Monica Crowley hit it on the head. They may decide to shut down the borders after the midterms. Well, I mean, that's even being borne out in a recent poll from Quinnipiac, which is actually showing that Hispanics have a 24% favorable view of President Biden, 24%. So that, uh, with the overall American job performance being 33%, so Hispanics actually dislike Joe Biden's job performance uh, at a 9% higher rate than the American public as a poll, as a whole. So, I mean, that's that's pretty damning and one that was even... Um, hard to believe. You've got Hispanic voters showing a 42-point shift towards Republicans since 2018. So that's another another piece right there. Yeah. And those those numbers, I mean, th- those aren't fake numbers. I mean, those are really, really, and they're, they continue to trend more in favor of the GOP. So by the time the midterms arrive and, uh, or even 2024, I mean, who knows what those numbers can look like. It's hard to see why hardworking immigrants of this country would, would support Democrats that really just represent the, uh, the elites, the the elites and the wealthy in this country. Yeah. I mean, and they identify with the same values of the people that built this country in the ivory towers of Wellesley and, you know, Santa Monica, the, the Hamptons, all of these places. Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard. They don't understand anything. I mean, you watch like The View and, and Joy Reid's like, well, you know, once black people start buying guns, you know, the, we're going to see this, you know, Second Amendment get shut down real quick. And the, the same thing, you know, they don't understand Hispanic voters either. You know, they, they continue to say, well, the browner this country gets, the Republican Party will never win an election again. No, guys, the word is out on you and your ilk. And what should be so troubling to the Democrats is the same factors that they cited when they talk about why the increase in Hispanics was troubling for the Republican Party. It's actually true on them. Look at Florida. Florida used to be a battleground state, but now it's it's not so much purple. It's starting to get pretty red down there. You have battleground states in Nevada, Arizona. Who knows? New Mexico could soon be in play. Colorado is getting increasingly Hispanic, but really all 50 states are. You can't go anywhere anymore and not have a sizable Hispanic community in your state. And I think the Republicans would be very smart to continue to do outreach here. One thing that happened last week, and I know you probably saw this, George Soros, he he wasn't content to install, you know, all of these DAs to destroy all of the American cities. Now, 
he is buying radio stations. He bought this past week, I think he bought something like 40 Spanish language radio stations because he clearly sees this as an existential threat for the Democratic Party. He even bought uh, Radio Mambi, which I think is an anti-communist uh, radio station in Miami. He's, he's going to make all of these talk radio stations and, and music radio stations, he's going to make them all Marxist radio stations in an effort to try to stem this tide. Exactly. And they're, they're doing everything they can. But uh, if you look at the 22 battle for the House right now, you've got Republicans with a solid 223 seats, Democrats with 180 and 32 toss-ups, which probably most of those would go to the Republicans. We're probably looking at a historic red wave in the House. And I would probably venture to say that most of that is going to be due to Hispanic voters. Yeah, let's hope so. And, and, you know, I think you off air told me that, you know, Mayra Flores will not have the same district due to the census and redistricting in the next election. She may be she may have much tougher competition, but I I urge everybody to look into her, maybe send her a small donation. Uh, She is the face of, you know, the new Republican Party. And we want to see her and, and, and all working class Republicans uh, who who reject Marxism and socialism, we want to see them continue to win. Final thoughts, Paul? Well, you did bring up that district, and it it is interesting. I mean, she did win, I mean, with the redistricting, so the fact that she's been elected now, she's likely only going to be a congressperson for about six months. And then that new district leans Democratic, so chances are she may not be there for the whole time, but you never know. I mean, the way this is going and after what happened in Virginia, you know, it could be even larger surprise. And one thing that we've learned is what the Democrats have done to, to generalize and stereotype around what specific races and ethnicities want out of their government is just plain wrong. And if you stick to the American values of freedom, individual rights, self-determination, that is what is going to drive this country forward. And that's what I think we're seeing with Hispanic voters. So let's just see where that board plays out as we get closer to the midterms. Well, you know, two of our biggest three states of Midnight Ride listeners are Florida and California. They're some of the biggest states, but we know we have a lot of Hispanic listeners. And we know we have a lot of listeners, like Paul just mentioned, who value freedom and individual rights. And if you do that, Please continue to listen to The Midnight Ride. Subscribe, tell a friend, and give us a five-star rating. We are very, very appreciative this Juneteenth to have you listening to us. And we will see you next week on another edition of The Midnight Ride podcast with Paul Runyon and Connor Coughlin. For Paul, I'm Connor. Have a good one. Have a good one.